Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Rumours of the death of cryptocurrency, a bit like that of Mark Twain, appear to have been exaggerated. That's not to say it hasn't been a tough two years for the digital bankless currency. Since Bitcoin peaked at $60,000 in November 2021, the crypto world has been hit by waves of bad news. Exchanges have suspended payments and collapsed. So-called stable coins have proved anything but. And charismatic founders and entrepreneurs have been arrested. And in one high-profile case, that of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, convicted of fraud. He faces sentencing and perhaps decades of jail in March. Crypto has also faced more prosaic headwinds. The rise in interest rates, for instance, has raised the return on conventional financial assets, making an income-free asset such as crypto much less attractive. Yet for all this, cryptocurrencies have recently been rallying. In the past year, Bitcoin has risen from its low of $17,000 to a current level of $42,200. And it's not just Bitcoin. Other cryptocurrencies such as Ethereum have been going up too. And the market cap of the crypto universe has roughly doubled to $1.64 trillion. First, an upfront caveat. Crypto is extremely volatile and prone to suddenly halving out of the blue. So... Any talk about movements have to be set in that context. But as we on a long time in finance have been in a sceptic camp, we decided we should invite on the show someone who's extremely knowledgeable, indeed a cybersecurity expert and a fellow of the Bitcoin Policy Institute, a think tank. So welcome, Matthew Pines. Thanks for having me. I suppose we should really start by talking a bit about what's been happening. Over the last year or so, the airways have full of, been full of people, a bit like us, to be honest, who declared crypto to be on the rocks. So what did we get wrong? Well, first, I'll start by giving a brief caveat. So this is, these are my personal views, not my employers, and this is not financial advice. I would sort of bucket sort of a post hoc explanation, because these are always you know, looking in the rearview mirror, into like two categories. One is endogenous, the other is exogenous. So endogenous sort of things that have happened within the cryptocurrency industry, major risks that have now been sort of priced out. So the major risks that were you know, yet to be priced out were regulatory risks, were legal risks, were, were reputational risks. So the, some of those still remain. But the major settlements, e.g. with Binance, the pushing off to the side of the Sam Mickman-Fried scandal, sort of the resolution of FTX, the public relations brouhaha has sort of started to, to, to decay. While the SEC and more on the legal front has sort of run into some setbacks and some of their legal strategy to prosecute civil cases against crypto firms. They've been slapped down by various courts. And there is sort of in the legal sort of minutia, a sense that their strategy in going after Coinbase and now Kraken with some lawsuits potentially is, is going to be going uphill given some recent court opinions. So this kind of, I guess, an endogenous view that some of those major black swan or sort of major regulatory or public relations issues have sort of been de-risk or at least their risks have already peaked. And of course, markets are forward looking. Uh, they start to sort of discount those. Uh, the other is just Bitcoin being the most significant asset in the overall ecosystem is known to be very cyclical. It has a four-year halving schedule, and there's sort of a characteristic, sometimes maybe self-reinforcing cycle where there are sort of these booms and busts. And 
There is sort of a capitulation at the bottom where folks that are new buyers eventually cough up all their coins to what are called long-term hodlers and sort of the sort of accumulation phase begins again. And so you see this kind of characteristic sort of cyclical structure to the price action. Can I ask a silly question, Mm -hmm. which is what is Bitcoin for? Bitcoin is for global permissionless payments. So if you want to send... Yeah. So if you want to send an object of value digitally anywhere in the world to anyone without a third party stopping or censoring their transaction, that's what Bitcoin's for. So it's uh, perfect for drug dealers, money launderers and assorted bad guys. Is this one of the reasons why it's driven so enthusiastically? I mean, it's perfect for anyone that doesn't want to have their payment censored. So that includes both folks that are engaging in transactions that certain jurisdictions would view as um, illicit. It also is good for people that are in authoritarian regimes that are trying to evade oppression or dissidents that are trying to protect their money from seizure or confiscation. Yeah, like any open permissionless protocol, like encryption protects bad guys and pornographers. It also protects folks that you know want their communications to be not transparent to, to surveillance, just like the dark web has been a known sort of bastion of bad actors. It's also used to penetrate behind the Great Firewall in China, you know, the Iranian and, and the Russian surveillance system. So these are all double-edged swords. All, all new technology is going to be used by good actors and bad actors. So how much of the trade in Bitcoin is what I might describe as legitimate mm-hmm. or indeed on the side of the good guys? Mm-hmm. And how much of it is, as I would describe, essentially criminal? Well, this is very hard to assess. The best estimates are around 1%. So chain analysis, which is probably the largest. 1% being Sorry. what? The, the good guys, the 1% no, or the bad 1%, guys? 1% being associated with what's called like illicit. And illicit's a broad bucket when it comes to both either, say, cyber criminals using it for ransomware, whether it's just outright theft or extortion, or whether it's money laundering, smuggling, dark web markets for illicit trade. The methodology of how you ascribe that, you know, is, is, is sort of hard, so, hard to pin down. But yes, that's about the other. So all of that, all of that, what you've just described, that activity is just 1% of the flow of Bitcoin transactions or the total value transactions. Yeah, that's astonishing. I have to say, I didn't realize I would have guessed it was the other way around. But still, I don't know. <laughs> that's why know. we're asking okay. you. Yeah. <laughs> but I was interested. I was interested, Matthew, by what you said about risks being in the rear view mirror. Because I suppose the way I would think about it is if, for example, crypto had been a financial institution as opposed to what it is, you would have to wonder how many depositors would be would be left because there's been a tremendous amount of stuff which has him left, if you like, in the mind of the public. This idea that it's pretty much a, a wild west where even the people who are the biggest players in the game are going bust have have misdesigned and uh, uh, and missold products in the case of something like the sort of stable coins like Terra, and are being arrested in airports for money laundering offences. This may be a risk which has a- appeared, but it wouldn't necessarily encourage you to immediately put your nest egg into this currency. Looking forward, is there not a public relations job that sort of crypto world needs to do if it's to genuinely and credibly attract a wider audience of buyers, even if the majority of them are, as you say, honest guys doing an honest trade? Yeah, I mean, there's two levels to that that question. One is the, the public relations question, which is sort of a question of narrative. And obviously, narratives are the coin of the realm now. And of course, the narrative in the last 12 months has been essentially crypto shadow banks 
turning out to be fraudulent operations run by hucksters or con men. That's just true. That's just like an objective fact, right? And those people need to be prosecuted, thrown into jail, their criminal operations wound down. And so like FTX is an example, basically was shown to have, I think, a single Bitcoin on its balance sheet, right? But fundamentally, it was a offshore, unregulated (laughs) shadow bank, right? And there's lots of history in financial markets of essentially wildcat shadow banks that you know, write IOUs, claims that they can't back up. And when there's a run or when there's some fear in their ability to make good on those those IOUs, those unsecured deposits, there's a run. And that's what happened with FTX. What's happened with a number of these sort of variations of sort of crypto shadow banks or unsecured deposit claims. That's different, though, I would say, than Bitcoin itself. Like Bitcoin is just an open source money project, right? There's no institution associated with it. There's no founder. Unlike where you have a lot of these modern day crypto projects, especially the large institutional ones where it's tied to their personal behavior. It's tied to your trust in that institution if you're going to deposit money, say, at FTX. If you're going to give your money to FTX, that's like trusting a financial institution, right? With Bitcoin, you don't necessarily have to do that. You can just own your own Bitcoin. You can run your own node. You don't have to trust any third party. And so there's folks that are in the institutional, say, capital allocation business that have learned a lot of lessons over the past few years and to sort of discriminate between different parts of the market and where they should appropriate their funds with different degrees of trust. And so you're seeing a kind of maturation of this industry and also sort of the associated understanding and nuance on on the side of sort of traditional capital allocation. And there's a lot, obviously, of, of mess to clean up from folks that want to defraud and sort of corrupt, you know, trust. It's an easy place to sort of go offshore, set up a set up an operation and attract money from from around the world. That's unfortunately sort of the flip side of being an open permissionless system as bad guys can exploit it. Sure. But the thing is, if you have sort of bad people swimming around, I mean, either you can say, well, the solution is just own your own wallet and look after your own little pile of coins, which is not hugely efficient for most people, or you can find better people to do it. And is there a sign in your view that those lessons have genuinely been learned? And and if so, how do good guys demonstrate to the public that they are very different from SBF and all the other people who've been rather discredited? Yes. And there are some there are some technical things that exchanges and other sort of third party custodians can do. One in particular is called proof of assets. So because these are cryptographic related tokens, you can attest cryptographically that you are in possession or you control those tokens. That can provide a certain level of transparency to validate to the market and to your depositors that you still retain control over those assets. That only solves like half of the sort of proof of solvency question that we we run into sort of several times now. You have to marry that up with credible auditors signing off on the liability side of the ledger. It's, it's funny, it's like an accounting thing, right? You need to have like confidence, you need to have transparency. The financial system itself went through these issues with Enron and then 2008 is you're trusting some black box of a, of a balance sheet and you're hoping that both sides of those ledgers are matching up and crypto is taking advantage of the fact that a lot of these institutions can register in the Bahamas, et cetera. So there's like technical things you can do like that, proof of assets, proof of liabilities, give more confidence and transparency. Same thing with stable coins, for example. Tether has famously failed to sort of pass multiple audits. It's been a bit evasive on sort of exactly the composition of its reserve holdings. It's given some high level description of the composition of those reserves much better than the past few years. Most of them are in high quality liquid assets, you know, short term T-bills, etc. Obviously, that's one of the primary sort of legislative and regulatory pushes, especially on the stablecoin front, is if you're if you want to be regulated as a stablecoin issuer, you have to sort of meet certain standards of accounting. And, and you know, I think that's all that's all healthy. It's a matter of who gets the right to issue those stablecoin balances, whether it's you know going to be reserved just to existing kind of GSIB banks or whether it'll be broadened out to, to a broader set of issuers in a sort of a narrow bank model. That's kind of where the debate is. Do you see Bitcoin particularly becoming a sort of reserve currency mm-hmm. alongside the paper currencies that everybody 
turns their noses up at, but which we can't do without. No. Bitcoin is more functioning or evolving as a speculative reserve asset. In the current global dollar system, you know, the dollar itself has sort of two different roles. The dollar itself as a, as a unit of account and medium of exchange is sort of a symbol that is commonly used to denominate ledger balances in both onshore and offshore dollar system. And those ledger balances, the sort of underlying reserve asset that secures or collateralizes those IOU claims from both onshore and offshore banks or shadow banks is the treasury security or other high quality liquid assets in different regulatory regimes that are treated as uh, you know high quality liquid asset collateral. And in offshore dollar system, you know you often give a treasury security as a collateral to get you know more more high powered money, get more liquid deposits. And so Bitcoin functions, I think, as an asset more like a global reserve asset undergoing speculative monetization. But I think the long term evolution of Bitcoin, at least in a plausible scenario, say in the next five ten years, is not going to be seeing it increasingly being used to denominate transactions. It'll be increasingly being used as like safe and liquid collateral to do other forms of financial transactions globally. Whether that eats treasury security market share, or whether it just eats into gold's market share, or just carves out its own demand in global markets for something like a crypto security TBD. It would have to be much more stable and much less volatile if it's going to fulfill that particular function. Yeah. As a pricing mechanism, it's completely hopeless at the moment because you don't know what the dollar price of what you're buying or selling is from one moment to the next. And that sort of stability... I would have thought was extremely valuable. Do you think that's the way it's going to go? Well, I mean, portfolio allocators, even whether it's investment funds, pension funds, up to sovereign wealth funds, they try to stay on the efficient frontier. And so that means looking at the risk versus return. There's been a bunch of econometric and statistical models of looking at if you introduce you know, what percentage of Bitcoin into that portfolio, does it improve the efficient frontier of your overall portfolio allocation. A number of Fidelity, a number of other funds have done that analysis looking at sort of trailing 12-month, two-year, three-year periods. In most scenarios, Bitcoin actually improves the efficient frontier. There's another paper from uh, the Harvard uh, PhD economics program, a guy named um, Matthew Ferranti, and he did this analysis that looked at for countries that are exposed to sanctions risk, what is an optimal portfolio allocation between, say, the existing composition of global, you know, say, G7 assets, gold, and Bitcoin? And he looked at, okay, well, this actually is a new sort of asset class that has diversification benefits, necessarily has, you know, somewhat different seizure-resistant properties than, say, gold does, as well as G7 reserve assets. And, like, the TLDR of that analysis was roughly, it makes sense depending on how exposed you are to sanctions, <laughs> to have anywhere from like 3 to 10% of your sovereign wealth fund or your national reserve assets in Bitcoin, just as that sort of one narrow example. Can I ask one other question, which is what, if any, impact has China's ban on cryptocurrency transactions had on the market? Well, it was an interesting test of the network itself because China had been up till then the largest source of what's called hash power. So the most amount of like computing resources dedicated to competing to process transactions to add to the to the overall global blockchain, China had the most dominant position in that market. And they just sort of brought the hammer down all of a sudden. And there was a massive exodus, you know, several dozen percentage points of the global hash rate sort of dispersed around the world. The hash rate being the mining kind of activity. Yes, exactly. And, and essentially, you're, what you're saying is the market just shrugged it off fairly quickly. Bitcoin itself is somewhat of a self-healing system. It has these sort of inbuilt autocorrective mechanisms into the code that's open source. And they, you know, everyone can decide which version they want to run. And there's kind of a shelling point. Everyone agrees to run the same version of the code. And it has like these programmatic 
feature is called one very important feature is the difficulty adjustment. So, you know, every two weeks, roughly the amount of hash power on the network, gets sort of averaged out and it adjusts the difficulty to find that special number in the next two weeks cycle. And that means that unlike with like a big gold mine, if like gold went up 20x, everyone would start mining gold. There'd be a ton more gold brought onto the global markets and the price would sort of fall down. In Bitcoin, you know, essentially this auto correction built into the difficulty just means that like no matter how much more hash hash power you bring out of the network, it sort of targets an average difficulty level that ensures that the amount of Bitcoin that's issued stays constant. So there's a lot of these self-corrective mechanisms. Bitcoin itself as a mining, like the mining layer of Bitcoin, it's like this hive mind. And especially we're coming into the halving, which is sort of when the amount of issuance drops by half in April of next year. A lot of Bitcoin miners that are not on that sort of marginal profitability sort of tipping point are going to go out of business. And so it's an extremely competitive market. And it means that you're in this sort of extremely competitive race to find the, like, the cheapest power globally. A lot of that is like abandoned hydropower, a bunch of renewable energy projects that don't have interconnection to, to load centers or, or taking advantage of these demand response programs. Whereas a lot of, you know, say solar power during the, during the middle of the day and not, and not a lot during, during the night. And so they sort of flex their load over the course of the day um, to sort of eat up that what's called a duck curve. Bitcoin mining itself is having a very interesting effect on the grid uh, around the world. Is it true that it, each successive one requires more computing effort? and more, thus more energy than the previous one. And is there an actual limit to the numbers that will ever be found? Or is it essentially infinite if you've got uh, your quantum computer or whatever <laughs> it is for the next generation? Yes. So the algorithm basically can treat an arbitrary amount of compute. So, you know, we are at like 500 exahash right now. And when, when Bitcoin started, it was basically like laptops. And now you have like, gigascale data centers that are all competing. And yet the Bitcoin issuance schedule is the issuance schedule. So it's it's completely independent of how much computing power is brought to... But who, who fixes that schedule? I mean, it was released when uh, Satoshi Nakamoto released Bitcoin as sort of a first complete protocol that start running in 2009. And it's been that way ever since. When I looked at it in, I think it was March 2021, it was said of Bitcoin then that the energy required to mine it was equivalent to the entire energy consumption of Netherlands. And that while you've talked a little bit about renewable energy and solar, a lot of the electricity that was being used to power these very powerful computers was coal-fired electricity in Iran and Kazakhstan. Well, is that still the case? Is that still the case? Yes, I think the latest numbers I've seen, and again, this is just top top of my head, is about 58%-ish of Bitcoin's hash rate comes from what you might call renewable sources. So that's wind, solar, hydro, and nuclear. And that still leaves, you know, 40 plus percent from non-renewable sources. So that could be coal, natural gas, peaker plants, et cetera. And yeah, so folks that are, you know, environmentally inclined are definitely pushing to turn Bitcoin into 100% renewable. And that is feasible, but it's not there yet. But is it a good use of energy? If we're talking about something that is consuming a quite wealthy country's <laughs> yeah. electricity consumption, for these somewhat kind of nebulous purposes, you have to question whether that's a brilliant use of energy in the world we live in. That's a moral judgment, I would say. Uh, you know, we have data centers that are processing petabytes of pornography every day that are not necessarily serving much of a social purpose, but are consuming probably about the same amount of, of, of Oh, energy. I don't know. We, we have Christmas lights <laughs> that, you know, are based on just decorations, you know. To a certain extent, you know, if you want to live in an open, open free society, you know, people purchase energy on the open market, and then you try to ensure that any 
negative externalities from that energy use, e.g. carbon emissions, is disincentivized or they're paying for it. And so I would separate out negative externalities from energy consumption that relates to, say, greenhouse gases from just energy use itself, right? We want more energy use. We want to have a civilization that is much more flourishing. Usually the direct correlation between energy consumption and human flourishing is strongly positive. So unless you're kind of a, we want to reduce human consumption of energy, we want to all basically go back to 19th century sort of standards of living. Generally speaking, we want to have more energy being consumed. We just want to mitigate negative externalities. I think sometimes that, that gets conflated is that you're just consuming a large amount of energy, therefore bad. You quite enjoyed the 19th century, didn't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> a long time in finance. Yes. No, I rather agree because I don't know how you discourage it. We're discouraged from using energy in the UK because it's so bloody expensive. Well, I mean, there's interesting, you know, in, in the United States in particular, the energy question has you know, drawn a lot of the political attention. But like in the mining industry, there's been a massive sort of say synergistic alignment of their business models with a lot of like the grid operators that have dealt with the fact that a lot of their, their principal sources of say demand response load generation have been industrial manufacturing sites that have gone out of business during the pandemic, et cetera. And as, at the same time, they've been pushing a lot more renewables onto those grids, which makes them inherently much more unstable because you don't have as much predictability in the, in the associated matching of supply and demand. And the traditional way you balance those grids is using natural gas peaker plants. You sort of, you know, when there's a high demand and, you know, you need to provide it, you need to like turn on these massive gas turbines, which have a characteristic sort of peak and then decay, which is quite long and very inefficient. Well, they found that actually in you know, a lot of these contexts, because Bitcoin miners can basically cycle their miner basically at like sub-second intervals at almost any level of demand from 100% to 0%, that they can sort of provide that sort of fine-tuned, controllable load to actually help the grid maintain like that stable frequency they try to target about 60 hertz. I love the idea of the, the Bitcoin miner saving the electricity grid. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, <laughs> and, and I don't mean to like greenwash the whole thing. There's definitely bad stories of folks in Kazakhstan and other places basically that are just aggressively doing whatever they can do, and that, that involves generating a lot of negative carbon externalities. But I think it's a nuanced empirical picture. To come back to Neil's point, do you see a world in which there are more use cases for Bitcoin and where as a result of its widespread adoption, it becomes significantly less volatile and these halving events halve themselves or even decline even more. What would it take to bring that world about? Yeah, I mean, this is essentially what Bitcoin's price reflects is that extreme volatility is people constantly updating and discounting either that future scenario playing out or not. I mean, I think, I think even, um, I think it was either Hal Finney, one of the original sort of Bitcoin developers, or Satoshi, who said like, in the far future, like Bitcoin demand is, is either like extremely high or zero. Oh, that uh, seems, it, that seems to have covered it. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting to the point. Yeah, so I, I, I don't think there's a scenario in say 20 years where Bitcoin is still like $50,000. Bitcoin is either much higher than what it is now, or it's effectively failed as a project. And so that's effectively what the price currently reflects is, this call option on a future dramatic price appreciation, but also huge amounts of, of unknown tail risk that have yet to be completely de-risked, right? If it was known that Bitcoin would just become, you know, on this glide path to global sort of sovereign reserve asset type thing, hmm. it would already be, be a million plus dollars and there wouldn't be a question, right? But the fact that it's thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 tells you that the market is pricing in radical uncertainty between that level of success and complete failure. I don't want to sound like someone from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, but galaxy. what is the galaxy? But what is the answer to this question? What is the 
thing that leads to one destination rather than the other, the million dollars versus zero. I, I used to do like scenario planning for the government in low probability, high consequence events on emergent technology and also like very bad things. And those are scenarios that are implicitly very hard to ascribe probability to. They're kind of in that sort of 19 uncertainty, fourth quadrant, Talebian bucket. But if you had to sort of do the scenario analysis and say, well, what would we have gone through as a trajectory from here to there to make that like a plausible outcome? And I think a number of key things would have to happen. One, you'd have to have a much more generalized and permissive regulatory environment in sort of the G7 countries, where they sort of accommodate sort of the existing institutional frameworks and legal systems to this emerging asset class in a way that isn't fully complete yet. But so that would be a first major you know, sort of bar you'd have to clear. You'd have to get you know, legal certainty, and that then would unlock broader pools of institutional capital. So the ETF that is likely going to be approved in January is like the first of those sort of major sort of institutional gates falling. But to do that, then you have to make it less anonymous, presumably. It has to become more identifiable who's a player and who is not. This, I think, will be the key question. And this is the part that in Bitcoin is the most controversial because the folks that have sort of in the Bitcoin world that have been in, in Bitcoin for a while, like their legacy philosophical and political ethos is sort of cyberpunk, crypto anarchist, not all of them, but that's kind of like the, the, like the genesis kind of orientation. <laughs> and it's meant to be sort of open source, non-state money. And what you're seeing is potentially like a soft capture of Bitcoin by state or state regulatory structures that implicitly forces this trade-off between uh, potential censorship resistant and number go up, right? Ultimately, you can imagine a scenario where what the government is currently trying to do in various forms, whether it's the IRS broker-dealer regulation, whether it's FinCEN's money transmitter and other regulatory procedures, whether it's OFAC designating a bunch of mixers, is essentially trying to gate Bitcoin so that all the on-ramps and off-ramps from the fiat system into Bitcoin are going through KYC AML checks, where nobody can essentially conduct... That's near your client and anti-money laundering, just, just for the listeners. So, so you can imagine like, <laughs> this, sort of like this global topology where Bitcoin is a sort of freewheeling global money, and then there's a legacy correspondent banking system and the central banking system that sort of is the hub for that spoke. And so that's going to be this push and pull between the legacy system and this emerging system. And I think they'll, they'll eventually reach an equilibrium, some accommodation, but precisely how far on which side of that spectrum uh, yet to be seen. Some of us might say, don't fight the Fed. But the, but the reality is that the path to the million dollar Bitcoin is probably through some de-anonymization and with your legacy kind of shotgun and bean can people basically sitting on their hoard of Bitcoins and never disclosing who they are by <laughs> waiting for someone to come along and transact with them in Bitcoin, I suppose. We're probably going to have to wrap, wrap up. I don't, still don't feel brave enough to put any of my nest egg into this. This stuff. I'm afraid that when we know a bit more, we'll be back again to see if we can find an update and a special translation. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.